to the Humanity Church Podcast, a place where meaningful conversations around living by faith, being known by love, and becoming a voice of hope are shared with the world every week. We hope that you enjoy this podcast and will join us live on Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, online or at the historic Fox Theater in beautiful downtown Pomona. We also host humanity groups that meet all throughout the city and online to continue the conversation and support you in your ongoing spiritual journey. Find one near you by visiting humanitychurch.com. If you would like to financially support this podcast or the ongoing work at Humanity Church, you can text any donation amount to 84321 and give directly from your phone. Now, here's this week's podcast. Well, we're in the middle of a conversation that we're calling David about the life of David, because we're not really that creative with this conversation today. And uh, we're really taking a look at the life of this man who impacted so much of how we see faith and how we view God and whose life was an example of both what we ought to do and ought not to do at times and how to lean into that fully. And there's something really powerful about taking a look at the life of someone who both followed God passionately and was completely human and learning from both ends of the spectrum. See, it's one thing to learn from someone who's like, hey, they had it all together, and they lived their life, and were perfect. And that's not David. (laughs) But David had these incredible highs and lows about his life that that were just so incredible to to examine, to take a look at, to see, hey, what in my life do I need to examine uh, that's working and not working in the context of this? And so we're going to be engaging this. We talked about his calling. We talked about him stepping into this role of being a giant slayer. And now we're going to talk about this really powerful moment in his life that I think oftentimes gets overlooked, but I think it's probably one of the most important aspects of his life for where we're at today in our culture. So let's pause for a moment and let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for this moment that we get to be in, for the opportunity to uh, connect to you, to be with one another and to hear from your word. I pray that today as we engage this, that you would move in our own hearts, our own minds around what it looks like to engage one another at a new level. So I thank you in Jesus' name, amen. There's lots of questions that haunt me uh, as not just a pastor, but as a person and someone who coaches people and who cares deeply about other people's spiritual journey and One of the questions that really keeps me up at night is how we can be swimming in a sea of humanity and still people struggle so deeply with loneliness. That people still struggle with how do I find relationships that matter and how do I find people that are in my side and how do I get to be with people that I can be on their side? How can we be swimming in a world full of almost 8 billion people and still struggle with loneliness? And on top of that, we are living in a culture where anxiety and depression and hopelessness are at an all-time high. We're also living in a time where there's more people on the planet than ever, and so you think that there would be a connection between the two, and, and yet we have all the resource all around us, and it seems like many of us can't access it, or we struggle with accessing it. I know I give this statistic all the time, but I think it's so pertinent for, especially where we're at in Southern California. UCLA did a study about 10 years back, and they, they found out the amount of time that it takes for someone to call their neighbor a friend, and the average time in Southern California is 10 years, that you could be living next door to someone for 10 years and still not call them friend. See, see 
The thing is, is that every single one of us have this intrinsic need, not a desire, not a want, a need to have people in our lives that know us at an intimate level. And every single one of us have a need to know other people at an intimate level, to be able to be with people and say, I get who you are. I know the close, intimate details of our lives. And, and I actually think this is one of the greatest proofs that God exists, that every single one of us has this deep need within us. Even if you're sitting there saying, I don't really have that need, I promise you, you have that need. <laughs> because we found that solitary confinement is actually one of the worst punishments that you could ever give a human being. That removing people from other people is actually one of the greatest ways you can damage the human psyche. And the, the fact of the matter is, is, is that I believe this is one of the greatest proofs of who God is. Because here's the thing, I could actually buy that we as human beings have like evolved from a mess into where we're at today as a species. I could somewhat buy that. I could even buy the idea that we've evolved into this need for one another out of survival of the fittest. That, that is out of survival instincts and mechanisms that I recognize that I need other people and so I'm willing to step into that. But what's harder to explain is that you and I actually need other people at a deep emotional level that we need to be known and to know other people because that goes beyond just like a primal drive for survival. That moves beyond just a need to, to get what I need to survive and to get food and water and shelter and comfort because if that was the case, we would just exist with one another. Like, hey, you got the food, great. You got the water, great. You got the shelter, great. We're all taken care of. I don't really need to be involved in your life all that much. But the fact is, is that the reality that we need to be emotionally attached to another person puts us in a very vulnerable place. In fact, that is no longer a survival instinct. It is the exact opposite. <laughs> it puts you in a, a dangerous place, into a space where there is now possibilities for hurt, or there's possibilities for letdown, or there's a possibilities for emotional disengagement. And so you would think that if this was something that we were evolving out of, that we would have evolved out of it by now. But it seems like it's a need that gets stronger and stronger by the generation. However, what if our drive for intimacy was not a flaw, but it was actually a design feature? That, that we were actually designed to be drawn towards one another, to be connected to one another, and that in the process of pursuing this desire to be known and to know other people, that it would drive us right to God. That in our pursuit for this, this longing for intimacy within us, that in the depths of our souls, that if God himself was relational and we were created in his image, then it would make sense that we would be drawn into relationship both with him and with one another. And this is a really, really powerful place to be. To be in a space where you have people in your life that know the intimate details of you, and you know the intimate details of them. And right in the middle of David's life, there's this powerful relationship that David develops with another man by the name of Jonathan, who happened to be the son of the king, Saul. This happens right after David kills Goliath, and he becomes known as this mighty poet warrior in the scriptures. And here's the thing. When we were dividing up this conversation around David, and taking a look at the various aspects of his life and what communicator was going to take what and who was going to speak on what during this series, I said, I don't care who speaks on what, I want to speak on Jonathan. 
Because I actually think this is one of the most important conversations for us as a culture to be having right now in this space. And so I want to bring us into this space. In fact, I want to do exactly what I did last week because I don't know how else to do it besides having a little story hour. So if you would oblige me. <laughs> We're going to take a look at, at this story of Jonathan and David, starting in 1 Samuel, verse 18, starting in verse 1, literally right after he kills Goliath. It says, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe and was wearing, uh, Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. Now that seems all great, right? David's climbing among the ranks, except when you have a jealous king who doesn't really like the fact that there's now a new guy in town who is taking street cred for what's happening in the city. And we're going to talk about this next week around how jealousy poisons our identity. But Saul, the king, starts to grow jealous of David. And this is what happens in 1 Samuel, starting in, verse 19, in chapter 19. It says, Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow and go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand where my father is in the field where you are. I will speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? And Saul listened to Jonathan and took his oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. Now, it sounds like great, right? David's good. Jonathan's cleared this up. Except the problem is, is that when you live a jealous life, it permeates you everywhere, and Saul finds himself once again ready to kill David. And so we now jump to chapter 20, and it says, Then David fled from Noyath and Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that is trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. So David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast and I am supposed to dine with the king, but let me go and hide in the field until the evening of, of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him. David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for the whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can, sh you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, I would tell you. David asked, who would tell me if your father answers harshly? Come, Jonathan said. 
Let's go out into the field. So they went together. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed to you, I will not send you word and let you know. But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut your kindness off from my family. Do, do not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan and David reaffirmed his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Then Jonathan said to David, tomorrow is the new moon feast. You'll be missed because your seat will be empty the day after tomorrow towards evening. Go to the place where you hid, where this, where this tr- trouble began, and wait by the stone easel. I will shoot three arrows onto the side of it as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy and say, go find the arrows. Now if I say to him, look, the arrows are on this side of you, bring them here, then come, because as surely as the Lord lives, you are safe. There is no danger. But... If I say, boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go because the Lord has sent you away. About the, ma- uh, about the matter, and you and I will discuss, remember the Lord is a witness between you and me forever. So David hid in the field and the new moon feast came. The king sat down to eat. He sat in the customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan and Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day for he thought, oh, something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he's unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son, Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to to the meal either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered, oh, you know, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because your family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brothers ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. This is why he has not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. You thought your family had issues, right? (laughs) Don't you know that you have sided with the son of Jesse, your own shame, and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives in this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me. He must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father, but Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. I guarantee you, you have never had a Thanksgiving dinner like this. I mean, he literally pulls out his Glock and is like, I'm going to shoot you right now. Shoots at him and misses, right? (laughs) Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger that second day, and he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him and said to him, run and find the arrows I will shoot. And the boy ran. He shot the arrows beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrows had fallen, Jonathan called after him, isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned home. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, go, carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then David kissed each other and wept, but David wept the most. Jonathan and David said, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord. The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. And then David left and Jonathan went back into town. And then years later, at Jonathan's funeral, David pens these final word about his relationship with Jonathan. And it says this in 2 Samuel 1, how the mighty have fallen in battle. 
Jonathan lies slain in your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman. See, this friendship between Jonathan and David was so powerful. In fact, Many scholars have studied and studied and studied this relationship with David and Jonathan and tried to make sense of it. And, and most modern scholars read this, and the only conclusion that they have come to is that Jonathan and David must have been gay, that they must have been in a gay relationship with one another, because in our context currently, when we talk about intimacy with one another— When we talk about this level of connection with one another, there is no room or context outside of the context of sex to have this type of a deep intimacy with one another. There's not even a category for this type of relationship, especially between two men. There's not even a realm in which we can put this into reality with. So the closest thing that we have to explain Jonathan and David's relationship must be some type of erotic love with one another. I was, I was reading this article in the New York Times this last week on Gen Z, and it was talking about how Gen Z is the most depressed, the most anxious, and the most lonely generation that we've seen in the last 100 years. In fact, if you look at the, the charts on depression, anxiety, and loneliness, it just shoots up with the younger generation that is around us. And because of this, the writer was saying that because there's so much loneliness and because there's so much anxiety and because there's so much depression that Gen Z is actually the least sexually active generation in the last 100 years. Now, the author's solution for this was, well, Gen Z just needs to have more casual sex so that they can get out of this slump of anxiety and depression and loneliness. See, the author recognized the only way from his modern context to step out of a space of loneliness and depression and anxiety was to just have more sex. Because here's the thing, when you find yourself struggling to live a life of intimate connection with others, you will settle for anything else that feels like intimacy. You will settle for anything else that just, hey, this resembles some type of intimacy. I don't actually know how to have this heart-to-heart, emotional, known and be known type of relationship, so we'll settle for something else, which is why the words intimacy and sex have become synonymous with one another in our culture, that when you say, I'm intimate with someone, what you actually mean is I'm having sex with this. Now, It's just more sex and friendship. All of those are being mixed up in our culture, and now both are weird. (laughs) And it's not actually solving any of the solutions that are problems that are going on in our culture. But what if this type of intimacy that Jonathan and David describes is actually what we were made for? That this is actually describing a category of intimacy in our friendships that we don't even have a context for in our modern understanding of relationships. That that this is actually the, the paradigm that the scriptures call us into when we are connecting to one another and that it used to be just called friendship with one another, which is at the center of all of our needs for intimacy. I mean, let's just do a little poll in the room. How many of you are married? Raise your hand in the room. Just raise your hand. Don't be shy, all right? (laughs) How many of you would say that your partner meets all of your intimacy needs? 
Like, like all of your friendship needs, all of your emotional needs, all of your mental needs, that you really don't need any other person besides them to have every single bit of your intimacy needs met. Just raise your hand. No, one person. All right, one person in the whole room. <laughs> Here's the reality, folks, is that you can even be in a marriage relationship and still need other people to have your intimacy needs met in some way, shape, or forms. This is how we know that marriage, even in itself, is not sufficient to have all of our intimacy needs met. See, what I love about our community is we have folks who have actually chosen a life of singleness, a life of celibacy, both straight and gay, and our response as the church when someone lives out that type of life is to have endless pity for them. Or we have nice, well-meaning church ladies who are like, I'm going to hook you up. I'm going to hook you up. I'm going to pray that the Lord brings you someone. And I know people who are like... I don't want someone. I've actually chosen this life and I'm not interested in finding someone because we have this idea that marriage is the end-all be-all of all intimacy needs for one another. That somehow if you just get married, then your intimacy needs will be met in some way, shape, or form. And the reality is, is that this is a far cry from what the scriptures tell us. See, it's, actual, it's actually possible to have deep, intimate relationships with another person outside of the context of marriage. And again, if you're equating that word with sex, just notice that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about an intimate, fulfilled, emotional connection with one another that brings life. See, this is the relationship between Jonathan and David. It's an example for us of what true intimacy looks like and the way it fulfills this deep need within us that every single one of us longs for. See, what if all of our friendships were made so that we would be loyal with one another? See, I love this aspect of Jonathan and David's relationship because Jonathan was fiercely loyal to David, even when it cost him everything. Even when he was looking at, hey, I'm going to lose my family relationships over here. I am going to lose the ability to step into the throne someday because he was the next one on the line to be king at some point in time. And he literally said, I am going to put all of that to the side to be loyal to David. And he stood with David through the possibility of even death by his own father. And he refused to move from this side in the, both the good and the bad. He was like, I'm in. I don't care what it takes. I'm in. And it, just, it wasn't just when it was beneficial or convenient for David or Jonathan it wasn't just when, hey, things are good and I'm with you. It was in the good times and the bad times. And he was fiercely loyal with David. See, see, the other thing that Jonathan was with David is that he was sacrificial at almost every place he steps into with his friendship with David. Over and over and over, Jonathan gives of his service, his supplies, his love towards David. Jonathan, again, was the next in line for the throne. And he could have fought for that place. He could have said, screw David, I'm going with my dad, I am going to kiss his butt, and I'm going to do what I need to do, and I'm going to brown nose to make sure that I'm the next in line for the king, and I'm going to do everything it takes to get there. But out of sacrifice and loyalty, he was willing to give up everything to support David in what he was up to. See, Jonathan also was not concerned about what he was getting back in the relationship in his sacrifice. Have you ever been in a relationship where there's sacrifice, but there's like scales of sacrifice? You know what I'm talking about? Like, hey, I did this for you, and I sacrificed this for you, 
Now it's your turn to sacrifice. See, that's not actually sacrifice. We call that transactional relationship. But what I love here is that Jonathan was just like, hey, I, I, I will do whatever. I will sacrifice and give of myself, and I'm not holding some type of scale as to how much you have sacrificed for me or how much I've sacrificed for you. I am just giving of myself in the relationship. And it was in the act of sacrifice that both David and Jonathan experienced this powerful intimacy with one another in this friendship. See, also, what if our friendships were designed for intimate emotional attachment with one another? See, because that's what I love about this relationship with David and Jonathan. This friendship wasn't just like, I like you, you like me, we're cool type of attachment. This was an attachment where you weep at the thought of being separated from one another. Where the thought of being disconnected from one another tears your heart apart. Where at the end of the day, David could say, our love was closer than that of a spouse. That's how intimately connected we were with one another. See, what it's saying is I am beyond investing in your life. We are now connected as a people and stepping into the future together. See, what if our friendships look like that? Loyalty, sacrifice, deep emotional connection with one another that was abiding through the good and the bad. See, here's the thing. All of these are exciting, but I don't know about you, but when I think about that type of friendship, it scares me to death. Anyone with me on that? Anyone like, that sounds great, and I don't know about that. I don't know if I'm up for that. I don't know if I'm really willing to connect that. I don't know if I'm willing to sacrifice for that. I'm not, I don't know if I'm willing to be loyal. Because here's the thing. There are benefits to having someone like that in our lives. There, we all would long for a Jonathan in our lives who says, I am loyal to you. I will sacrifice for you. I will be emotionally connected to you through the thick and the thin. But loyalty, sacrifice, and emotional connection require a heck of a lot of risk. It requires a lot of risk to develop this type of a friendship because now, now that I have given you my loyalty and now that I have sacrificed for you and now that I have decided my heart is attached to you over there at an emotional level, now I have something to lose. Now I can be hurt. Now it's not as easy to back out and to say that was a nice ride, thanks, see you later. See, Jonathan at any point in time could have been like, this is way too much drama, I'm out. I mean, let's just be honest, right? Here, here's, here's David, who is a lot of work as a friend. <laughs> Jonathan's managing his dad. He's managing the relationship. He's managing his relationship with David. It would have been every, very easy to say, this is a toxic relationship. This is too much drama. I need some me time. I need some self-care. I'm out, right? And yet he chose to stay through all of it. And David, David could have done the same thing. He could have been like, this family's crazy, right? They're shooting each other at the dinner table. I do not need this in my life. He could have easily bounced as well in the middle of this. And yet he stayed and he stuck in it and he created this dynamic friendship that becomes an example for us today of what relationships look like. And here's what I found, is that every single one of us want a Jonathan on our side. We want someone who says, hey, I will give up everything. I will be loyal. I will be emotionally connected to you. I want to develop this type of relationship. But here's the question that I have. Are we willing to risk for it? no matter what? Are we willing to put our heart on the line? Are we willing to sacrifice? Are we willing to step into that type of loyalty? 
See, here's what I find is that more than 50% of the population will not do that with a wedding vow, where it is messy and all kinds of legal obligations to get out of that, let alone a friendship where you can instantly say, I'm out, I'm bouncing. We don't have to sign a legal document. I'm just not texting you back or calling you back or seeing you again ever. See you later. See, because this type of friendship actually requires us to put aside all of our fears and all of our agendas and all of our personal desires and say, I am for you, period. I'm in. I remember early on when Marla and I were engaged and we were in all kinds of conversations because Marla really enjoyed premarital counseling. <laughs> in fact, we did like premarital counseling with like three different people in three different contexts. And I was like, whatever you need, honey, let's do it. <gasps> and she said a lot of scary things in those contexts. <laughs> But there is one scary thing that she has said over and over and over again that started in those conversations, and it's probably the thing that scares me the most about our relationship. And she has said, no matter what you do, I will never leave you. She said, I don't care. I don't care. I'm in. And she's gone down a list. She said, you could do this. You could do this. You could do this. I will follow you. And if you run away, guess what? I'm going to be in my car right after you. And you know what? That's horrifying. Because that is a, I am in for life. And that is like a, oh, if this is the type of relationship that you're committing to, then it calls me to that same level of commitment. Because it makes me recognize, oh, all that stuff that most people would leave me for in a heartbeat, you're not up for that. So all those things are off limits. Because I know that you're in. See, what if we actually had that same type of mentality with our friendships? And we just said, I'm in, and I mean it. I don't care what happens, I'm in. I will see it through to the end. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have boundaries, and that doesn't mean we don't, hey, say there's, there's moments where we have to take breaks or set up guidelines for relationships. I'm not talking about stepping into codependency, but I am talking about a level of friendship that says, I will be loyal, I will sacrifice, and I will attach my heart to you. And I am willing to take that type of risk in the middle of this. See, because we live in a world where our desires and our preferences and our insecurities and our need to be right override our drive for intimacy at times. And at times, we would rather be right, we would rather have our preferences met, we would rather have all of our needs met in the moment than step into a space where intimacy has the possibility to flourish, where our need to self-protect and stay in control, it often keeps us from experiencing the depths of friendship that not only were we made for, but that we need at an intrinsic level within us. See, you can live with the anxiety that comes with risking for a deep, meaningful friendship, or you can live with the anxiety of living an unknown life, but you don't get out of it. There's, there's no context in which you get out of the relational risk. See, this is the problem with living in a world obsessed with relational safety. This is actually where things start to break down because everything that our soul needs in a relationship, fierce loyalty, extreme sacrifice, emotional investment is one of the most dangerous places that you can step into with another human being. There is nothing safe about these things. 
but they are also the elements that create the most powerful context for beauty and goodness and intimacy and a fulfilling life around us. In John chapter 13, starting in verse 34, this is what Jesus says to us about how he relates to us and how he calls us to relate to one another. He says, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Jesus actually doesn't tell us very many times things that we must do. In fact, he's usually more of like a, hey, I'm gonna give you a hint. This is the way to life. (laughs) And here he says, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are disciples if you love one another. See, here's the thing. We all want a Jonathan, but are we willing to be one? Are we willing to sacrifice for that? See, our love for one another in this way transcends just our need to self-protect and to stay in control and to have things turn out the way that we want. The world around us, Jesus said, will actually know who God is based on how we develop our friendships on how we love one another, on how we engage one another. And I think that when when people talk about this verse, when Jesus says, they will know you're my disciples because you love one another, I think we have very cute ideas around what this means. Like, oh man, I bought them a latte. I'm a disciple, right? (laughs) I I watched their kid, you know, and I didn't charge them the full amount and it was inconvenient for me. Ah, look at how much I love God, right? I sent them a birthday card. I I bought them a coffee. I gave you hugs and kisses. See, I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about when he says, the world will actually know you are a follower of me because you love one another. See, I think when Jesus says, the world will know that you're a follower of me and that you love the way I do when you love one another, he's actually saying, when you lay down your need to self-protect and to stay in control and to preserve your life for the sake of another person, then the world around you will go, how on earth are they doing that? Nothing about that makes sense. My, My soul is suddenly filled with life, and I don't know how we got here. See, this is the covenant relationship that God has set up for us. See, when God says to love others as I have loved you, Jesus loved us in the way that Jonathan loved David. He has been extremely loyal to us. That that he basically says, look, as far as the heavens are from the earth, as far as the east is from the west, so far as I've sent your sin away from you, and I am not going anywhere. I am in. That he, he has been so sacrificial in his friendship and relationship with us unto the point of death. And that Jesus is so emotionally attached to us that one of the most powerful moments in the scriptures is when Jesus overlooks the city and says he wept because of what was going on in the hearts of the people that he loved. See, this is the relationship that Jesus establishes with us. And then he says, look, if you would go out and develop these same type of friendships with people around you filled with loyalty and sacrifice and relational investment, then the world around you would say, I want that. How on earth do I get that? Because that seems to fulfill this deep need inside of me. And here's what shows the world that we are his followers because only someone with a savior big enough to save them over and over from the risk and the hurt and the pain and the letdown and the betrayal of a friendship is crazy enough to step into those type of relationships and says, I'm in. 
Every single time that you choose to enter into these friendships with loyalty and sacrifice and emotional attachment and connection with one another, when it is risky and dangerous, it is proof that there is a God inside of you who will heal you over and over and over again and allows you to step into this type of space. Because Jesus does this with us over and over and over again that he chooses to step into this covenant friendship relationship with us where he is loyal and he is sacrificial to the point of death. And within that, we know that there is a God who covers us and allows us to give our hearts away to others. See, everyone wants a Jonathan. And I even hear so many people complaining about, there's just no one who gives back to me the way that I give back to others. (laughs) There's just no, there's no one in my life who, who gives, who, who has this fulfilling, I just can't find people. People are flakes and people are disconnected and people are whatever, fill in the blank with that. See, I actually think all of that complaining is a cover-up to not answer the bigger question. It's who are the Jonathan that you are being for others? Who are the people in your life that you're like, yeah, I'm in. I, am, I will be fiercely loyal I will be sacrificial for you. I will be emotionally attached to you in this place. Who are you willing to be a Jonathan for in your life where you are all in? And as you engage in that space, it will be an invitation for others to join in. But not only that, it will be a demonstration for the world around you of how good God is. See, I am convinced that The world around us is struggling to connect with this God of love because we are unwilling to enter into the type of relationships that shows them what this looks like. Not because we have a great relationship with God, because of our friendships with one another. And so here's what I want you to do this morning. If you have a phone with like a notepad, a note in it, just pull out a note. If you have, uh, if if you need to write something down, just grab that card in back of you, but something that you can take with you. And here's what I would like for you to do right now. I'd like for you as you just open up that notepad, that note uh, app, or something that you can write down some names in just a minute. I'd like for you just to close your eyes for a moment. And I'd like for you just to ask the Lord right now. Maybe you're not even a follower of Jesus. It's all right. God will talk to you. I just want you to ask him right now, Lord, would you bring to mind the faces and names of people that you have called me to be a Jonathan for, that you have called me to step into covenant friendship with, where I will be fiercely loyal, I will be sacrificial, I will be emotionally all in. And as God brings up names, I just want you to write their names down on that that sheet or on that app. Maybe it's someone that you haven't talked with in a while. Maybe it's someone that you gave up on and you're like, oh, wasn't supposed to give up on them. Maybe it's someone you're already in connection with and, and maybe you've just never told them, hey, I am in. I, I, am, I, am, I am all in and I'm not going anywhere. And I am willing to be loyal to the point of sacrifice and I, my heart is so connected to you. And I want you just to put some names down as you see those faces. And look, I'm not talking about a huge list. I'm talking about two or three people. Start with that. You're like, man, these are the people that, like Jonathan looked at and said, I'm in, I will give you my robe. I will give you, I will fight for you. I will make sure that you're covered. I will sacrifice for you. I will be loyal with you. And I want you just to just get those names down. 
If you're online, you can do the same. Because here's the thing, this cannot just be a nice idea. This cannot be something that we walk away from this morning and say, oh yeah, we should be friends with people, that's cute. I'm talking about, hey, I am in. And I'm gonna face the fear and the anxiety and the overwhelm of the risk of the relationship. And I am going to start establishing intimate connections with people and they're gonna know it. Because here's what I want you to do this week with that list. I don't ever say, hey, you should do this this week with a list, but I'm gonna do this this week. I rarely do this. So when, when I say that, listen up. I want you this week to contact those people. And I want you to let them know the vision for the friendship that you are committed to. And look, make it awkward. It's gonna be awkward, all right? Yeah, I may, you may be listening to this is an awkward thing. How am I gonna do? Call up someone and be like, hey man, I really love you. And I just want you to know that I wanna be loyal to you. I'm a sacrifice for you. And my heart is all in. Yes, absolutely. Because here's the thing. This relationship with Jonathan and David, it is so perplexing to our culture today because of how we relate to friendships, that there is no context for it. And it is up to people like us who are saying, look, I get it. There's no context for this in our culture. There's no context for this in our current political system. There's no context for this in our current relational rings, but I am going to create it because this is what my soul needs. This is what your soul needs. And this is how God designed us. And so I'm gonna make it awkward and that's okay because my soul needs it. And as we together begin establishing friendships that demonstrate the heart of God, people will suddenly recognize how much God loves them through us. Let's be those who create covenant friendships with one another. At the end of our, our days, we can say, man, that love, nothing compares to it. That I experienced God in every single one of these relationships that I stepped into. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you that you loved us in this sacrificial way, that you have been fiercely loyal, that you have given everything and that you have been emotionally attached to us. And Jesus, I thank you that you have stepped into this relationship with us and then you say, now love others as I have loved you. And so we first pause and we say, thank you for loving us in this way. Thank you for calling us friends and showing us what it looks like to be in relationship with that. And Father, I pray that this week that we would step into this space of courage and risk with the people that we love the most. God, even the names and faces of people that you put on our hearts that we're like, whoa, that person, really? That, that you would demonstrate how much you love us as we love others. God, move within us and through us this week. We thank you for your friendship. Now teach us to be the friends that the world needs. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. 